Hello everyone, it's Dr. Neil Buttery. We've reached the halfway mark of the fourth season of the British Food History Podcast. I've had some great comments from you via email, Twitter, Instagram, and the number of subscribers and the number of downloads are increasing all the time. Last month in August, it was certainly a bumper month for the podcast. Thank you all very much for listening. There's a great episode coming up for you in a minute or two, British Saffron with with Sam Bilton. But if upon listening to this episode, if you've got any questions or discussion points, please contact me. In fact, whilst I'm at it, it could be something from a previous episode, or it might be uh, something you've just spotted about food history on the net or in the news. Well, please alert me to these things. Have you spotted a mistake? Surely not. Or you might have read my book, a dark history of sugar. Have I mentioned it before? I don't think I have. And you've got some follow-up questions. Hey, get in contact with those too. My email, neil at britishfoodhistory.com, Twitter, at Neil Buttery, Instagram, at Dr, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Start a thread, leave me a DM, whatever. Let's get a discussion going. I'll be back at the end of the episode to let you know about this week's Easter eggs for subscribers, as well as details in case you don't know, of how to become a subscriber or supporter of the blogs and podcast. Anyway, today I talk to author, food historian and returning guest, she's a friend of the show, Sam Bilton. She came on in season two in 2020 to talk about gingerbread. Today, we're talking about British saffron, both growing it and cooking with it. Sam's got a brand new book that's just about to come out called Fool's Gold, A History of British Saffron. It's published by Prospect Books and it's due out on the 8th of September 2022. I'm very good at it too. We talked about when, where and why saffron was grown in the country, how common it used to be in the British diet, its liberal use in the form of curry, using saffron in your own cooking, saffron as a dye and food colouring, how it was harvested and prepared... We talked about gilded chickens and the return of British saffron. Hey Sam, thank you very much for returning to the podcast. I didn't put you off the first time. Not at all. <laughs> Good. I have your book, Fool's Gold, oh. A History of British Saffron, published by Prospect Books. It's great. Why did you write a book on, on British saffron though? It seems like um, it could be very niche. <laughs> I think everything I write about tends to be very niche. Um, it's uh, So my family are from Essex, uh, particularly North Essex, mm-hmm. and both my parents went to school in Saffron Walden. And as I was growing up, I suppose I never really thought about the significance of the name Saffron Walden because the locals just referred to the town as Walden. But as I got older, I, I started to wonder, well, how come this small market town in Essex is associated with the world's most expensive spice. I couldn't really believe that it was grown in or ever had been grown in England, although obviously that is the case as that's the whole basis of the book. So um, I I wanted to find out more about it because obviously until recently it hadn't been, it sort of was grown and then it sort of died out and I wanted to sort of explore that journey and that uh, story. Yeah, I mean, I I knew that it saffron was grown in saffron walden i but i think i just assumed it was only grown in saffron walden um, because it was the only place with saffron in its name <laughs> which realizing it now was a rather silly assumption to make uh, and i also assumed oh it 
was a flash in the pan, best left to um, other people. But I turns out I was very wrong about that one too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was grown here for a long time, grown in England uh, for a long time. It's it's obviously not from it's not a native plant. So the crocus sativus, the particular crocus that saffron comes from, isn't uh, a native. Uh, crocus to England. It uh, originated in, we think, in Greece, possibly sort of a genetic mutation of a different form of crocus. Uh, There are pictures uh, or frescoes uh, discovered in Akrotiri on the island of Santorini, which was devastated by an earthquake around 629 BCE. And they depict women picking what looks very much like the saffron crocus. So Mm -hmm. The assumption is that is where it originates. And certainly people like Pliny the Elder used to praise the saffron from Cilicia, which is in Turkey, so, or modern-day Turkey. So it's that's where we think it came from. But yes, it's, it has to how it got here. There are a number of interesting ideas. I'm assuming it was a meandering path to Britain, um, because when you think about saffron now, you think of the, sort of the Near East and you think of Spain. Yeah. Is there a, that, that's about it, isn't it, for saffron? When it comes to the classic, you know, the best saffron, it's considered the best saffron anyway. It's those two places, isn't it? The three main areas of production for modern saffron are La Mancha in Spain, Iran, and I believe Kashmir. Oh, okay. But it is grown in other parts of Europe, for example. So there's uh, saffron in Swiss, Switzerland, um, in uh, saffron of Mund, uh, <laughs> which is in the canton of Valais, that and that actually has PDO um, status, but again, it, it's probably I would imagine on a par with the sort of quantities of saffron we're producing here in England at the moment. It's not uh, it's, it's not a major production area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's producing Greece as well still, um, and again, that the saffron from a particular area of Greece has got PDO status. Yeah, it is. It's, it's there are main centres for saffron production, but it's still producing quite a, a, it's surprising in some ways that it is still produced quite widely across Europe in little pockets. So I, I guess it's no surprise really that the saffron industry has sort of revived in Britain. I was quite surprised actually uh, reading reading your book about saffron's origins being European, albeit, you know, the very eastern side of Europe, because I just assumed it was from, I don't know, the Indian subcontinent or China and it was just one of the other spices and other you know exotics that were traveling traveling all the way down it was really um again something I'd never considered before that some spices were traveling up the spice road and the silk road in the other direction into Asia because you think of everything just coming from Asia it's a it was a a two-way thing it was it was trade (laughs) um going the other way which again I always think of it as a very one direction kind of set up so that was really interesting one of the lovely theories about saffron um, Mm. in terms of how it got to england is that it was brought here by the phoenicians who were great traders and sailors and they um i mean there's no i couldn't find i mean i didn't obviously the book again i could have done a whole book on just ancient saffron but uh none of my my investigations led me to believe that the phoenicians were particularly attached to saffron or cultivated it to a wide extent but because of their trading network is every chance that they were picking it up en route and the theory is that they brought it to Cornwall 
uh, to trade for tin because they did value tin, which they needed to use to make bronze. So that's one of the many theories of how saffron got here. I think probably the most popular and well-known is the pilgrim returning mm-hmm. from the assumption has always been the Holy Land of course. Um, <laughs> that had saffron sort of secreted in his palmer's staff. But as you know, I've pointed out in the book, one saffron bulb does not a entire harvest make. You know, you need an awful lot of saffron bulbs to make even a, a gram of saffron. So yeah, there's there's lots of other things, and of course the Romans who get blamed for everything or tr- are credited for everything. You know, <laughs> if, if in doubt, blame the Romans. Yeah. Um, and my view is that probably there could be elements in truth in all of those, but I suspect we started to import it via Spain. Is my best guess because Mm -hmm. they've certainly been using it there since I think ninth or tenth centuries so it's that would be my if I had to put money on a place where we we, we acquired it from I'd probably go Spain but where the Spanish acquired it you know it could have come from further afield obviously. We'll assume Occam Razor which is usually the most boring but most likely (laughs) explanation. Yeah. Yeah Yeah, they just wanted to grow some themselves because it was... I mean, there was there were a lot of. I mean, it was. We know that after the Black Death, there was. It was certainly being starting to be cultivated widely, and there were economic reasons around that because there was reduction in population meant there wasn't such a need for grain, for example. So land could be used for alternative purposes, mm-hmm. and saffron lends itself very much to that because it doesn't require a lot of land to produce a reasonable amount that can make you a decent profit. And it was highly valued in the medieval era. So we know sort of Saffron Warden, I think one of the earliest uh, refer- written references, not so it hadn't been grown there before, was from about the mid-15th century. Uh, at that point, it was being grown quite extensively in that area. Yeah, I mean, in the form of curry, which is you know written about 1380, something, again, I kind of not put two and two together with was, you know, I've, I've cooked quite a few recipes from the form of curry and if I haven't cooked them I've, I've had a look at them and there's so much saffron in those mm. recipes almost every recipe has some saffron in it which seemed yeah. to me before I read your book just even by Richard II's you know known over purchasing and opulent living even then it seemed a bit too much but um you say that perhaps it was being grown for other purposes than just food in there that people were possibly using it to dye clothes. Yeah, I mean, I don't touch go into great detail on that because I'm not a fashion historian, but the mm. or a cloth historian. I don't know what sort of historian you would be to study dyeing, but um, <laughs> it's it was certainly used as a dye. Uh, one of the things I do mention briefly because it's such a lovely story is the uh, yellow starch that was produced to colour ruffs in the sort of late 16th, early 17th century. It was used apparently to dye shirts in Ireland, to which unfortunately the English were very uh, quite scathing about yes, the reasons were, for doing they? that, <laughs> <laughs> implying that the Irish weren't basically clean and they were they had to dye their shirts with saffron to stop them being lousy. I think as Fines Morrison says, um, which is a bit <laughs> harsh, but uh, it was very harsh, not a bit harsh. Yeah, it was used as a dye, and they do. There is one theory. Uh, that one of the reasons it was so big in Saffron Walden, as it became known, because it was previously known as Chepping Walden, uh, was because of the wool in, the wool industry in the area, and therefore it was being used to dye cloth or the wool. And presumably that required quite a lot of saffron. I mean, I know it's got a very strong stain, 
you know, a vibrant colour to it, but I'm assuming there must have been tons of it about, hence why it's so common in English cookery in that time. I mean, yeah, it's it, when you read sort of uh, the quantities you need to produce a gram, I think it's something like 50, 150 to 200 flowers. Everyone sort of thinks, oh, gosh, that's a lot, but the bulbs multiply when you put them in the ground. So you very quickly, your bulbs will produce, uh, they call da- they're called daughters, um, so they produce offspring, if you like. So um, you and they planted close together. So although again, typical saffron patch or a plot, it wasn't terribly large in terms of commercial farming. Mm-hmm. It actually could produce yield quite a profitable crop. And, and in some years, for farmers, it was really the difference between starving and surviving, having a good saffron crop. But of course, saffron, like most crops, can be affected by the weather so I know I read one document where they'd had a bad frost and that had utterly annihilated the saffron crop so yeah it wasn't a foolproof way of making money but if it worked it was a it was very it could be very lucrative indeed and it's um a kind of autumn crocus is that right so most bulby plants most crocuses and daffodils and snowdrops are all part of the same family and we associate them with spring or the onset of spring but Mm. saffron's kind of the opposite opposite side of the yeah yeah so crocus sativus is uh the the saffron crocus it it blooms in the autumn and uh it's not to be confused with the although to look at if bar the purple state uh the bright red stamens you would think it looks no different from an autumn uh the spring flowering crocus rather but it's yeah it only flowers in the autumn and it's only that particular there are other autumn crocuses uh mm-hmm. but they they're not they're not the same uh at all you pick them before they are fully blown as they would say in the in the uh, old manuscripts before they sort the flowers are actually open so you pick them early in the morning when they're closed and then yeah that's from there that's how they're processed but it has to be done on a daily basis it's a short very short window the, the harvest but it's intense literally back-breaking work <laughs> yeah um, and it was mostly that aspect was mostly conducted by women and children um, because you have to be quite delicate obviously to pick because you don't want to damage the plant yeah you don't want some plowman's big fat finger in there ruining it all no. <laughs> Well, I suspect there were other reasons. I think for the farmers, they would probably would argue that they'd done the hard work planting the bulbs, and then you have to dig them up periodically, depending on what part of the country you're in. Different parts of the country had views on whether it should be three years. Some places, I think, like Norfolk, was seven years. Yeah, three years seems to be the general mm-hmm. gist of when you should be transplanting your saffron corms to a different plot. And is that the main places then? Um... Cornwall, we've mentioned, Saffron Walden, so Essex. Yeah. Um, Cambridgeshire? Yeah, Cambridgeshire, East Anglia basically is the area that's really, I would say, is predominantly saffron growing region in, well, historically speaking, Mm. um, and even today, to be fair. So, so Cambridgeshire, Suffolk, Norfolk, uh, North Essex. uh, There was a study that looked at where saffron was grown in Essex and it seemed to be predominantly around the Saffron Walden, Cambridgeshire border area. Saffron Walden is northern, the northern part of the county. But that said, I did find it growing in uh, Sussex, where I live, um, mm-hmm. in Kent. William Harrison, who is one of the most cited sources about saffron production, it's certainly in the 16th century, he wrote about it in Hollinshed's Chronicles. 
descriptions of the descriptions of England, he actually says that the saffron from the Vale of the White Horse, which is I think Oxfordshire, um, whether that corresponded to Oxfordshire back then, I'm not couldn't say for sure. But he actually said that was the best saffron in England, which is kind of ironic because he was a vicar from Essex, sort of Wimbish <laughs> and Madwinter. So why he was suddenly uh, saying that the Oxfordshire uh, saffron was better than that in Essex I have no idea but um, he did so maybe he was just able to be objective about it <laughs> who knows he yeah, um, yeah so it, you find it if you look in the archives you find uh, in wills particularly saffron plots or saffron grounds being left all over the country so Berkshire um, Buckinghamshire well I say all over the country the southern part of the country I would say sort of the southern counties and Cornwall is interesting because a lot of people would just assume Cornwall's too wet and doesn't have the right climate, but it really did thrive there as well. So it's it was being grown across, as you know, so from the east to the west of the southern part of the country quite widely, but on a small scale, I should say. When I say widely, I mean a lot of people were probably growing it in small plots. How common was it in the British diet? I mean, we've talked about the form of curry a little bit, but that's an outlier <laughs> compared to yeah. most people in the country and what they were eating. I'm assuming people growing it must have meant it was popular, but is there any trends over through the, through the centuries from those medieval beginnings? Well, I think obviously you know that most cookery manuscripts that we have really right up into the 19th century tend to reflect what the sort of upper middle classes to the upper classes were eating mm-hmm. Uh, and drinking rather than the, the general populace. Uh, that said, I do think that if you were celebrating a feast, for example, you may have been able to get hold of from a baker a saffron-coloured bread or bun. That wouldn't be on. So people would have known what saffron was. But mainly, I would think the main uses we see, certainly from the medieval period and through the sort of 16th and 17th centuries, are mm. for sort of upper-class cookery. I think a good example is Richard III, like his coronation feast, the sorcery, which is the department that makes the sauces mm-hmm. for um, a, a banquet, bought three pounds of saffron for the coronation feasts, that they, which is a lot. When you think, you know, we talk about a pinch of saffron in a dish, that's an awful lot of saffron yeah. for one feast and would have cost even then a phenomenal amount of money. It's That's the other thing. It's never... It's not like it's super expensive now because it's super rare. It's always been expensive. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, people always quote the more expensive than gold thing. But you get more You get more for your book, I reckon, if you buy saffron rather than gold. <laughs> you get quite... Because it's very light, isn't it? You know, you get a lot. You know, you get half a gram or whatever, which seems like nothing. And actually, that lasts you ages. So the thing is with saffron, a little of it goes a long way. So you don't need an awful lot to change the colour of a dish. And that was one of the ways it was used. I would say its primary use was colour rather than flavour. Although you can't deny the flavour because it is included in some dishes where it was completely obliterated. The colour would be completely obliterated by the other ingredients, like dried fruits, for example. So obviously the flavour was valued, but it was primarily the colour and a, a little saffron, although there are theories on how much saffron is too much, uh, can dramatically alter the colour of a dish. Yes, I always go, you might not agree with this. <laughs> I think everyone's different, especially when it comes to saffron. When it comes to using it in the kitchen, 
for me, it's if in doubt, use a bit less. If you're thinking, is that a bit much or not? Err on the side of caution. Um, it does tend to go a bit soapy. It's hard to say. It can do. So I, I've cooked with saffron in the past. And I've talked to people and most of my friends in Britain kind of say, oh, I don't really know what saffron tastes like. Because certainly we don't have it as much as <laughs> as people did a, a few centuries ago. And I find it a hard taste to describe it. I just think it's it's really quite unique. It's it's hard to draw comparisons. I think it's quite floral in its nose. I know some people describe it as being like hay. I don't can't say I get hay off it, but I think it's quite floral in its notes, which is it's a bit like rose water. Different black brands of rose water vary immensely. So mm. I'm always like, you know, go go easy on the rose water. And I agree, go easy on the saffron. If you're unsure about it, I mean, I've obviously cooked a lot with it and I think maybe I've become immune because I can <laughs> I can tolerate quite high quantities. Put whole tablespoonfuls in. in. <laughs> uh, well, not quite because it's, it's still expensive. Uh, but I do sort of say to people, if you're unsure, err on the side of caution because some people, it's a bit like coriander. Some people just, uh, I mean, I've had people say to me, I can't taste saffron at all. Um, oh, okay. and coriander I fresh coriander I quite like but my husband absolutely hates it even a small amount in a dish he can't stand so luckily he's not that way with saffron because that would have been a disaster when I was writing the book <laughs> so I think it could be a personal thing um, but yeah definitely if you're on the side of caution if you're unsure um, there's one recipe in the book which I've given as an example um, for a classic saffron cake and it's based on Elizabeth David recipe, mm-hmm. which in turn was based on, a, 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 I think, a recipe from Devon rather than Cornwall. And that uses, I think, half a teaspoon of saffron threads to 500 grams of flour. Now, even I think that's a lot. Yeah. And I've left it in there. And I have said, like, I've left it in here because actually when you read a lot of Cornish texts, they do say, you know, a saffron bun should be proper yellow. And I will one thing I will say about that saffron bun recipe or cake recipe is it's a proper yellow there's no denying that there's saffron in it but it is that is quite strong tasting so i do say look if you want to use less use less but you won't have such a an intensely yellow bun is it saffron buns and saffron cakes are they really the only two hangers on from british saffron cookery it's weird because you'd think given the predominance of saffron growing in east anglia that mm. there would be more saffron cookery from that area. The only recipe I've kept, come across, um, there's one in Sally Francis, who's a saffron grower in Norfolk, uh, Norfolk Saffron. Um, she has a book and she's got a recipe in there for, uh, it's from Lowestoft. There's a, it's like a cake. It's a bit like, I think, a heather cake, a heavy cake from Cornwall. Any Cornish people listening, I apologise if I've mispronounced that. Yeah, that was the only example I could find. I wrote to National Trust Property. I contacted Audley End, for example, and I was like, look, have you got anything in your archives? And they were like, no. I mean, I've spoken to other food historians. If anyone knows of any dishes, please, please get in touch because I struggled. I, you know, I looked in, I said, Cambridgeshire archives. I spent a lot of time in archives when I was researching this book, Essex. Norfolk, Suffolk. Just nothing came up. Gosh. No. And it's a surprise. Although saffron buns, it should be said, were eaten all over the country at one point. Are they, why they've 
the Cornish have clung on to them. I believe it, they're popular in Devon as well. Um, mm-hmm. I have no idea why it survived there and they've sort of died out elsewhere. But they were, you know, they appeared widely in certainly 18th century cookery books. And by that point, we were using saffron less in savoury cookery. That's a one sort of example of a recipe where you'll, you will find saffron will be in a saffron cake or a saffron bun. Yeah, so, I guess today you're much yeah. more likely to find some saffron in a, I don't know, in a Turkish restaurant in the rice, maybe, or um, in a paella. Yeah, so that yeah, so yeah, the only exception I would say with recipes is that in sort of, sort of when we get to the 18th century, if it's what I would call a foreign recipe, mm-hmm. um, so there's a recipe that per, uh, crops up a lot with turkeys or capons in the Polish fashion, oh, okay. um, which <laughs> seems to have saffron in. Uh, Various pilaf style sort of rices have saffron in. We didn't really do paella. Obviously, Anglo Indian, that was the only other thing I would say in the 19th of century. Of course. Yeah. Well, can we just talk quickly about the different stages of going from bulb to uh, final final oh, product? Because yeah. we've mentioned about the hard work done. Yeah. So I will, I will try and do it in a, a snapshot because it, is, it's, it could be quite a lengthy description. All right. So basically, you plant it. And it's planted usually in the summer, again, unlike most bulbs, which are planted in the autumn. And it's about three centimetres deep. The, the bulbs, the corms, are about the size of a chestnut. So uh, you think like a, a reasonably large conker, that's what mm-hmm. you're looking at. Okay. And they're planted about three inches, seven and a half centimetres metric, <laughs> uh, in the ground, in quite close together, uh, in rows. And a typical measurement, you took, it's like a rood of saffron is what you would normally seen that's about quarter of a football pitch a uk football pitch okay i I can't off the top of my head remember what that is in in meters but it's it's not an insignificant no if you're planting yeah planting it by hand but equally from a commercial perspective it's not terribly large either but then as i said if you remember how much how many bulbs you put in and i it's it's an awful lot of bulbs are going to go in there and again they had to be planted by hand i think they still are as well i think you can get bulb planters but i've they're not always the most efficient way of doing it nowadays that is they sit in the ground till early autumn and sort of in september you might start to see the first leaves come up they're sort of spiky leaves Mm -hmm. no sign of flowers the flowers come on about well it varies i mean it depends on the season i'll be intrigued to see what the hot weather we've had in 2022 is going to do to the saffron Mm, harvest this year mm. because normally it's mid to late october the flowers start appearing but it depends again different parts of the country might have different early a slightly earlier start or a slightly later start and it lasts for about four to six weeks generally in the uk and then as i say the flowers come up they have to be picked early in the morning before they're fully opened Mm -hmm. by hand even now there's no shortcuts, never have been, never will be. Yeah. You don't want the they, plot to be much bigger than it is, surely, because it's just, it's even more horrible labour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, gathered and then they're taken back to a central location and then these stamens, the red, which are quite pendulous, if you like. If you see mm-hmm. a saffron crocus, they're quite obvious. You're not searching around for them. They're They're pretty obvious. They're pulled out, but you only want the red bits. So they're attached. They they come in. There's th- usually three, and some are sort of freaks of nature, if you like. You mm-hmm. sometimes get more than that, but generally 
each crocus has three stamens. Okay. You pick them out, but you really only want the red bits. So they're sort of attached, and as they go down, they sort of the, the bottom bit that sort of joins them all together will be white, and then it goes up to yellow. But you only I want see. the red bits at the top. Okay. That's all, all, all the only bit you dry. Then, of course, they need to be dried because this there is organic material. So the, the petals are discarded. Some in modern times today, sometimes they're dried and used for confetti. Oh, um, that's good. They were using cosmetics. But in the past, they were just dumped. And there are stories about the streets of Saffron Walden, for example, being coated in slime because apparently they go slimy really quickly. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, and lots of the locals getting up in arms. Their streets were covered in sort of slimy purple. I guess they weren't purple. They probably were brown by then. Mm-hmm. Um, petals. Um, <laughs> and then they dried. So in the past, this was done in the kiln. So they had these purpose-built kilns. And they would sandwich them, create like a a saffron sandwich. So you'd have papers either side. You'd lay your saffron threads on these papers. They were a bit like, I guess, like blotting paper. Oh, okay. And then they would be, I mean, it's quite, not complex, but it's, yeah, it's just for the sake of brevity. They were covered with a blanket. Charcoal was used because that was the smokeless or most smokeless fuel they could find. And... This is the, the bit that always gets me. They had to be, they were basically cooked over this charcoal fire mm. sort of in this sandwich and then flipped over after an hour. It was generally deemed if you didn't burn your saffron at this point, you, you, you were home and dry. But by that, <laughs> I mean in terms of it being ruined. But then yeah. every, I think, hour, every half hour, it had to be flipped. Okay. So for 24 hours, solid. So it, that somebody... <laughs> Or, or some people were having to take shifts, presumably, to remember to flip this saffron sandwich. And what you would get then was a saffron cake, not to be confused with the ones that we eat. So it was originally sold in these cakes rather than hate. What we could buy now is what we know as hay saffron. So that's broadly speaking what, uh, how it occurred. And then they would take and sort of wrapped in parcels, put somewhere dry and then sold at market. Let's talk a little bit more about the recipes. Half the book is recipes. Half the book is history. We haven't talked about that, have we? How it's structured. I really like this format for a book. I guess Elizabeth David does it in her yeast and bread cookery. Mm. So if if you like the history, you can read the history. If you like the recipes, you can read the recipes. And neither of them will get in each other's way. And if you like both, well, it doesn't really matter. There are just so many recipes I mean, I remember when I spoke to you last time, I think you were just about to begin yeah. putting the book together. And I just remember thinking, that's going to be a slim volume. <laughs> yeah, it's, you thinking... know what? It could have been a lot bigger. I, I think when I did my initial, when I say I did my initial research and I didn't by any means look at as many culinary documents as I could have done, I had 400 recipes from the, I don't, I can't remember how many books I looked at precisely, but. I could have looked at a lot more, but when I got to 400, I mean, that includes some medicinal recipes, I should say, but I was primarily focusing on the culinary uses of it. Uh, yeah. It, so actually I I was quite restrained. I had to drop, a, there was an awful lot I would have loved to have put in there, but I, I was quite, I, I think that's quite, a, I think it's some, just about 60 and that's, but that's quite a restrained number of recipes considering how many I came across in my initial research yeah and what what variety that was what my main aim was for 
cutting it down was to try and uh, I've sort of broken it down in sort of meat, poultry and game and fish and veg I've got vegetarian recipes in there as well and obviously baking and desserts but I wanted mm -hmm. to try and pick good examples of each from each area if you like it was as you said in the form of curry it's I could have basically reproduced the form of curry pretty much in that in my book, if I wanted to, a lot of the recipes are medieval because that was, I guess, the halcyon period of where it, when it was used it, in terms of cooking. Mm. But I've tried to include ensure that there's enough variety in there, so it's not it's not all the same. No, it's good. I mean, I'm terrible um, for hanging around a little bit too long in uh, the Middle Ages when it comes to my research because I find it just so interesting. Mm. I mean, it puts a lot of people off because we don't necessarily know. A huge amount about it not compared to say i don't know a victorian cookbook no. or recipe you know how they were reproduced but for me it's the reason why i like it you know it's a, it's a little yeah. bit tantalizing you have to fill in some gaps and that means you know you know by the time you've made the thing that its degree of authenticity could be lower than if you were following something written in i don't know the 1920s i don't know i still find it much more satisfying yeah i don't know about you Oh, gosh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love spices, so um, mm. which helps with medieval cookery because, or well, early modern cookery, because they, they were used so predominantly uh, in cooking. Um, but, yeah, you, they say there's so much you don't know. And, yeah, it's just, just fascinating, some of the dishes. I mean, it, the only thing is, is that I always have to say to people, this isn't what most people were eating. Most people weren't dining out on gilded chickens and or peacocks or <laughs> um, and having these wonderfully spiced dishes this is the elite elite cookery but it's still you know from i sort of compare it to if someone asks what does it taste like so well it you know it's it's a bit like middle eastern food if you think about it it's it's it's, it's not we didn't have chilies I mean, although a lot of dishes contain pepper so they can have it and ginger which can give it a bit of a punt and uh yes the one i get a lot is oh but they use the spices to cover up bottom meat so i, I need yeah. to get this tattooed on my forehead no i know the number of times I've had to say, <laughs> yeah, to say that. Yeah, if, you, if you could afford the spices, you could afford fresh meat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And as I say, rotten meat's killing you 500 years ago, just like it's killing you now. So, you know, people knew that they weren't, you know, generally eating rotten meat. I know game was hung till it was, you know, some people say maggoty. Well, again, yeah, I, but I, it's kind of like cheese and it's, it's kind of a controlled decomposition, as it were. Yes. That, yeah. You know, Finding that sweet spot. Yeah, I mean, well, I like game, but yeah, you don't want it maggoty. I once did that. No. No. I've never, I don't think I've ever eaten, I've eaten some pheasants that have been pretty high, but not not to my knowledge maggoty. And yeah, I'm, I be honest, personal preference is that I, I'd rather not have it that that intense. So Mixing saffron with game, um, something I'd never thought about before, but it's obviously a good idea. I can imagine them being kind of harmonising flavours because I think of saffron as quite earthy in its taste, and so I can imagine that going really well with with game. Yeah, so I'm going to try a, I'm going to try that next time. Well, I guess next, I don't know, September <laughs> when the game season starts again. It works really well. So I think in the, uh, actually the pheasant recipes, bizarrely from the 19th century, it's, it's uh, I think Francatelli's take on a, a Spanish dish. Which is very nice, but the uh, trespassers pie with rabbit, and the reason I've called it the trespassers pie is because rabbits and hares, but hares particularly, were the bane of the saffron growers' life mm. because if they got into your saffron patch, 
they would eat everything. They would utterly destroy the crop. But if they, you eat the leaves, you basically the bulbs got no way of getting nutrients, and uh, it would completely annihilate their crops. So they saffron grounds had to be basically fenced in. And if if they got, I mean, sometimes it was cattle trampling them, but it was yeah hares. With every book you read, moans about hares and rabbits. <laughs> so hence trespassers pie. But that's based. The filling is based on a medieval recipe, which has got saffron. Well, I like how you um take some of the um ideas of the medieval recipes and make them into something quite different and you mentioned uh gilded chicken mm. just then when we were talking and that recipe really really stood out it looks so good so what was gilded chicken before you were uh, adapted obviously it? anything golden was supposed to be i mean gold in um arabic medicine is supposed to be it's supposed to be health giving um uh, it's uh, health preserving so it was Gold is a, an ingredient was valued for that reason. But obviously you can't, most people can't afford, even rich people couldn't afford to coat an entire chicken or pheasant in gold leaf. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Richard III's coronation feast accepted sort of thing. It's It was, you know, he also bought something like 100 sheets of gold leaf. But, you know, that's, that was an exceptional occasion. Um, so gilding a bird with saffron, which in the medieval times would have been done with it was usually a mixture of flour egg yolk and saffron so mm-hmm. you would got a really bright intense color but what i found when i basted a chicken in that is you kind of lose lovely crispy skin so i i did sort of say look you, if you you know you, it's easy enough to look up on the internet it's it doesn't taste bad it just gives you just lose crispy skin yeah no, i've made nice. it before I, it's it's, str- it's strange yeah, um, yeah, but that was what they used to use to gild birds. It would be basted with this sort of concoction of flour, eggs and saffron and basted sort of at the end of the cooking. So you ended up with these bright yellow birds that were supposed to look golden and that mm-hmm. had its the gold connotations. I mean, gold leaf was used in small doses and that was, again, another reason why it was often you get saffron cordials or saffron was used to f- colour cordials because... There was certainly in the 17th century, 16th and 17th century, so there was this sort of this push to manufacture liquid gold. And I think there was one blacksmith's son who did succeed, apparently. Hmm. Whether he did or not is, <laughs> no, I would say, open to question. But um, hmm. he, he made a fortune from potable gold. But the, a, an easier way was to create a golden cordial by adding saffron. So you, you would make your, dis, you would distill your herbs and spices and then add saffron. And Escobar, which I put a, a version of that in the book, is a good example of that because it's it, yes. when you actually see it made, it looks quite brown, but when you dilute it, it's a beautiful saffron colour. It's it's absolutely stunning. Great photographs. Did you take the photographs? I did. Yes, they're did really good. I'm getting really better. Good. I wouldn't say I'm a food photographer. I'm a long way from being a food photographer. Oh, I don't know about you. that. I'm not just saying that because you're here. Yeah, very impressive. English saffron. Is having a bit of a comeback, isn't it? It is. I mean, I, I think again, we have to remember it wasn't. It was probably being grown a lot more wide. It was probably a lot more widespread, obviously, sort of early modern period. But it is great. Uh, it is being grown around the country, even as far north as Cheshire, uh, which I'm. I'm assuming. I mean, when I spoke to Pete at Cheshire Saffron, he sort hmm. of said, "Yeah, well, and the weather can be a bit of an issue." But they have apparently they're on a sandstone ridge, so they have. Saffron needs to be in free draining soil. Okay. But that said, I know Sussex saffron, 
Um, it's grown just down the road from where I live, and I'm we're on heavy clay here. I mean, it's not all uh, you'd think chalk downs it'd be lovely soil, but it isn't. <laughs> most, of, most, most of Sussex is clay, and uh, they get around it by creating sort of mounded raised beds and lots of organic matter. So it's grown, you know, Cheshire, Sussex, Kent, down in Cornwall, a lot in East Anglia. Uh, I've got a Norfolk saffron, I've already mentioned, Sanding saffron in Suffolk. There are probably others around the country, and I apologise if I haven't mentioned any. It's not, it's not a snub, but it's, you know, it's, it's being grown on a small scale. But, uh, yeah, and it's worth seeking out is what I would say. And I'm not just saying that because I've written a book on it, but it really is good quality stuff. Yeah, well, I'm not too far from Cheshire, so maybe I should check out uh, Cheshire one, try and go with the one that's the fewest um, food miles, perhaps. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll leave some uh, links to the producers that you mentioned in the book in my show notes so people can... Have a look. Lovely. Well, thanks again to Sam. I've got a feeling this book is going to go down very well with all of you. Hey, as promised, there are links to those British saffron companies, as well as links to Sam's website, social media, a link to the Prospect Books website, where at the time of publication, you can get a 25% pre-order discount. All that's in the show notes. Right, Easter eggs. This week, there are four of them. Count them. Four. All cut for time. I know I can make these episodes as long as I want, but for some reason, I think 35 to 45 minutes is a good length. So stuff has to go. The deleted scenes cover what type of farmer was growing saffron in Britain, some saffron cake-making tips, adulteration, and saffron as a medicine, including an excellent bit about the cordial Sir Walter Raleigh cooked up in the Tower of London's chicken coop when he was a prisoner there. If you want to support the podcast and blogs, well, you already are by listening to it. But if you want to support just a wee bit more, please review, like, and tell folk about it. You could also become a subscriber. Subscribers get access to those Easter eggs I was just uh, mentioning before. And there are, of course, lots of Easter eggs from past episodes, deleted scenes, there's an extra mini-season... And there are extra blog posts for subscribers. To start a subscription, go to the Support the Blog and Podcast tab on the website, BritishFoodHistory.com. A subscription is just £3 a month, but everything I receive will go back into making more content. Alternatively, you can treat me off to a one-off virtual coffee or pint. No pressure. I've said it. I've said my bit. And of course, don't forget to contact me with any questions, comments or queries. Off I pop. Have a good week, and you'll hear from me and another great guest very soon. Draw.